Our scripture reading tonight is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 14 through 27. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. close to Christmas. You can feel it. In, uh, in Matthew 2, so I know we just read from 2 Samuel 11, but in Matthew 2, we come to the classic Christmas story. And it's the manger, it's the straw, it's the shepherds, it's the stars, it's the swaddling, it's, you know, the unauthorized birthing of God through parthenogenesis. And lo, Verily, we love this story. We love it. It's a good story, the crash, the nativity, the pageant, the spectacle of it all. And it's here where we warm our hearts around Christmas. We're like, oh, this is such a beautiful little story. And hopefully when we hear the story, there's some peppermint hot chocolate near us and we're surrounded by our kith and kin and there's a balsam fir candle that's lit if you're a sentimental person. And then there's a, if you're not a sentimental person, there's a manure-scented candle going. You know, just keep it real. Sentimental or realist. And this scene that we see in Matthew 2 is, is really set up by what we see in Matthew 1. So this beautiful pageant, this beautiful spectacle, this beautiful story is set up by Matthew 1. 
And uh, Matthew 1 is affectionately called uh, the begats. I was in a, 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 a Baptist Christian day school until fifth grade, and all we used was the KJV. It sounds very Shakespearean, so I'm familiar with the begatting, right? If you've ever heard this in the KJV, just so much begatting is happening in Matthew 1. It's a string of names, just one after the other. So-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And we actually start out really well-intentioned, don't we? We're just like, all right, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it this year. I'm going to stay locked in. And it only takes us four names, and we're like, dumb, boring. All right, it's like going to a graduation, and you know there are 500 graduates, and you're really only there for one person. And they tell you, they tell the crowd, they're like, um, hey, if everyone doesn't clap after every person, if we could just reserve your clapping, wait until all 500 names are said. And what happens? Everyone disobeys that rule, and they announce the name, and you're like, I don't care about so-and-so. I don't know so-and-so. And then their family's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we love you. And, and they clap, and you're like, we're going to be here all day. We're going to be here all day. That's Matthew 1 just that string of names. And the reason why I'm bored with it, or anyone is bored with it, is because we don't know the stories. We don't know, we, don't know their per- we don't know about them. That's why we're bored with it. But it's the setup to this story of Matthew 2. And so what we've been doing throughout Advent is we've been going, we've been centering in on five of those names, and they're all women, and we call them the mothers of Jesus. And so we had some young ladies in our congregation make some dioramas to capture visually these these women for us. And so tonight we come to an unnamed woman in Matthew 1. But this is the funny thing. Everybody knows her name. In Matthew 1 it says Uriah's wife. And we know that Uriah's wife was Bathsheba, Bathsheba, if you want to get all Hebrew. Bathsheba. So tonight we look at Bathsheba. Now, you're gonna have to have some patience because I'm not gonna mention Bathsheba for a while. And you're gonna be like, look, you gotta keep it, you know, we're not staying long, buddy. And you're gonna get really impatient. You're like, I thought this was about Bathsheba. I came here for the Bathsheba and you're giving me something else. So be patient as this develops. Um, We are looking at Bathsheba. So uh, Matthew 1, and especially when we get to the part about Bathsheba, Um, gets to the heart of what the Christmas story is all about. So if you want to ask the question, what is the essence of the Christmas story? Just tell it to me straight, Tim. I think Bathsheba is a great vehicle to get to what the essence of Christmas is all about. So the first thing we're going to see is that uh, myth becomes real. That's what we're going to see about the Christmas story. Myth becomes real. The second thing we're going to see is that God remembers. God remembers. And the third thing we're going to see is uh, grace is inexplicably and brazenly wild and dazzling. I'm going to put scandalous and outrageous, but I ran out of room. Okay, so that's the three things I want to cover using Bathsheba. So the first thing is myth becomes real. Now, um, I I can think in my mind um, some essays that I have read um, over the past 20 years, and there's a handful of them that are incredibly formative over my life. I can think of Walker Percy's Message in a Bottle. 
I can think of uh, Marilyn Robbins' collection of essays called The Death of Adam. Just in, I didn't know something, and I read it, and it, it rocked my world. Now, you guys are going to know this, all right? The essay that I, has been very formative, there's a couple of them. It's about out, Insiders and Outsiders by C.S. Lewis. You knew that. Um, but there's an essay that is incredibly informative and formative for me by C.S. Lewis called um, Myth Became Fact. And he wrote it in 1944. So everything I'm about to say, I rip off from Clive Staples Lewis, okay? It's not an original Tim Lee and thought. And here's, I'm gonna try to summarize it, is we, we love stories. We love stories. I mean, Jesus knew it in his preaching, right? He just has a parable and it's a story. And we're like, tell me that story again. Tell me that story again. Uh, we love this idea that there's a love so big, so beautiful, so tenacious, that this love would still love a beast, and it would change the beast into something lovable. We kind of love that idea, it's a story. We love the idea of it. We love the idea of what if this happened? What if a pauper had the identity of a prince and the prince had this identity of a pauper? We're like, tell me that story. We love the idea of a superhero, right? Be it Spidey, Iron Man, Batman, Superman, Falcon, Bird Boy, I, I, anything. We love this idea of a superhero who's, who's going to what? Who's going to show up. Who's going to save the day, correct wrongs, put things right, and stop people from dying. We love it so much that you and I are going to watch the next 150 movies in the Marvel Universe. And we're going to gladly pay $15 to $20 for it. Every single one. Yes. We're going to show up, take my money, take my money. We love these stories. Love these stories. Um, now, someone could say this. All right. But that's just fairy tale stuff. And we love the stories, but we know they're fairy tales. Right? Um, let's try some real literature. Oh, but let me say this. Why is it when I read journals, and I read the LA Review of Books, or I read the New York Times Book Review, um, or you look at course catalogs in universities, um, why is it that they keep on dredging up old stories that are fantasy. Why is that? Why are the literati of the day saying, we have to hear the old stories of Ovid and Virgil and Homer, Beowulf? Like, why are we remaking Shakespeare over and over and over? You know that stuff never happened. Why is it? Why are we appealing to a story? Tell me a story again. It's total fiction. 
total myth, totally made up. And the literati of today say, those stories are important. Well, why? They're made up. This is where C.S. Lewis is money. He says this. He talks about truth being contained in these fantastical stories. But what does he mean by truth? Of course they're mythical. Of course they didn't happen. This is what he means, is when I hear a story, there is something in my heart, in your heart, that resonates with it. Like a love so big, it could change a beastly person. So we know it's fantasy. We know it lives in fantasy land, but what, what, is it, what is resonating in our hearts towards that? And C.S. Lewis calls that, oh, you're resonating for the standard of truth, even though it's fantasy. It's true myth. And, and he says something about our, I'm gonna paraphrase him here, he says, something about our heart says, wouldn't it kind of be amazing if we did run into something like that? I know it's not true, I know it's fantasy, I know it's superheroes. Wouldn't it be amazing if I ran into something like that? There's this huge idea that there's a standard for something beautiful and lovely and C.S. Lewis calls it truth. Now, I don't think Lewis would have phrased it this way. This is probably Tim Lian. Uh, but there is a sense when you or me, when we go to the theater for two hours, um, there's a sense that when we put our nose in a book or if we fire up the Netflix machine, ours is a big machine, I guess, apparently at our house. There's a sense when we do that, there's a sense where we are experiencing truth for a short period of time. Wouldn't it be amazing if it were that way? And so what do we do? We say, I need two hours where life really is that way. And the hobbits win, right? Everything gets saved. Iron Man shows up at on time. But here's the problem. You, you know the problem and I know the problem. We come back from the theater and we walk into four walls of drywall with the same holes in the same place with our relationship still messed up the same way. And life has beat us down. That's the problem. We sing, we sing, um, ye beneath life's crushing load. That's what we experience when we come out of the book, out of the movie. Oh, back to reality. The good guy doesn't win. He gets overlooked, the honest guy. Woman at work, guess what? You will get overlooked, you will get pummeled, you will get beat down. And if you're a bad person and you're dishonest or whatever, and you're gonna make, you're gonna climb as far as you can, guess what? You get beat down too. Life beats you down. Dreams don't come true. Oh, Merry Christmas. But, but, but you feel that, like you've lived it. You, you, let, you let anyone live 30 years and they're like, oh, you know what, I'm a little less idealistic than I was. Let them live. 
I, I mean, the preacher doesn't have to convince you of that. Um, and so what happens? The myths stay myths. The fantasies stay fantasies. They're true, but they're not real. They're true, but they're not real. Timing's perfect. <laughs> so um, a lot of our stories begin this way. Always true, but never real. Once upon a time. Right? Or this way, as Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. Or they start out a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or they start out, it was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. That's how you start a story. True, but not real. True, but not real. And the beginning of Matthew doesn't start once upon a time. It doesn't start once upon a time. This is real. These are real people. You can check. This is a stunning proposition is that the truth became enfleshed. Our stories are truth, true and never real. And Christmas is saying, truth became real. Or to use C.S. Lewis, myth became fact. That's C.S. Lewis, it's not Tim Leon. Wouldn't it be amazing if something like that were true? And Matthew says it did and it is. All right, second thing at the heart of the Christmas story is this, is um, God remembers. Now, I know you came for the Bathsheba. Bathsheba. We're going to get there, okay? But not now. Um, Matthew 1 starts out like this. It says this. Um, it's telling you. This is Jesus' resume. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, frames the whole thing before he tells you the string of names that are going to bore you to death, Okay? What is Matthew doing? He wants every last reader to understand something. He wants you to understand that God didn't forget. God remembered. Now, how does he do that? Um, God had this little fire pit, fireside, campfire chat with Abraham. He had pulled him aside. He said, let's talk. And he says this. He says, um, I know you, I'm going to paraphrase this. I know you can't see the big picture here, Abe, but um, you're going to have a big family, and it's going to be so big as you won't be able to keep up with the accounting of it all. It's going to be that big. That's what he tells Abe. And so after that, is this what, the, is this what we hear from the scriptures? After God has that chat with Abe, do we hear this? Um, and after hearing this, Lo, verily, Abe never doubted God again, and things seemed to work out pretty great. Is that what we get in the scriptures? <laughs> no. <laughs> if you've never read this part, no. Um, this is what we see. God promises the big family thing, 
And it doesn't happen in Abe's imagined timeline. And so what does he do? He puts on his very important Holy Spirit cape, and he says, I'm going to help God keep his promises, and I'm going to involve Hagar in the plot line. Well, that does not work out well. Hagar is not his wife. It's his wife's servant. It does not work out well. But God remembers. He remembers that this big family promise. So Matthew is saying something. Uh, In the story of Christmas, God never bails, not for one moment, on his plans to keep his promises. Now, um, someone can say this, and it's actually pretty good. All right, that's kind of my problem with this whole Bible story. So yes, Abe received that promise, but you and I both know Abe didn't see it in his lifetime. Right? And, and I get that. Like, what, what do we say to that? Okay, thanks for God keeping his promises, but I really would like to see him keep his promises to me during my lifetime. That's kind of the subtext, the problem that we have with it. And I get that. But let me show you how this could be a massive relief to your heart and mind, too. Let me show this to you. It means this. If God keeps his promises, then I don't have to spend my entire life running around trying to bend my life to this fantasy that is in my head. And you do it too. We're not running around to make it happen. It has to happen. It must happen. For me to have happiness, it must happen. And we're killing ourselves. But let me me show you in other ways. Um, um, There are things that uh, God has told me, (laughs) and I put that in quotes. Uh, It's dangerous when a preacher says that. But like he's shown me that there's certain things that Melissa needs to understand. Melissa's my wonderful wife. So what do I do? Put on a Holy Spirit cape, of course. What? And I'll do anything. I'll manipulate. Get upset. Get super kind. Uh, What am I doing? I'm just saying, I know you need to think this thing that I'm thinking, and so I'm going to do whatever it takes to what? Put on my Holy Spirit cape and convince you. And does that work out well for me? (laughs) Just, Just do this. It doesn't work out well. But you know what? We do it with our kids, too. Um, Would you consider this? What if, what if you had reasonable, truth-filled conversations with your kid and then walked away and said, I'm going to give it to the person and God who remembers, and I'm going to petition you to work on behalf of my child instead of what? Yelling and screaming and pushing and wheedling and and having the carrot or the stick, whatever it takes to push them along this route that we think is clearly superior. What, What are we doing? It's exhausting and we'll never be able to give it up. It's a drug unless you believe, oh, 
God remembers and is going to take care of it. God remembers and he's going to take care of it. Um, one more example, and I'll say bad examples about me, is when I was a young leader, I was made a head pastor very young, I did not know how to lead people. Now some of you may be like, well, you don't know how to lead them now. <laughs> okay, okay, that's funny. Um, but just listen. So what would happen is the church is just as political as any other institution. So I would want my leaders to have the same opinion as me. So what would I do? I would go and I would have all these little side conversations. It's called triangulation. It's very unhealthy, all right? And I would try to have all these side conversations and get them on my team and my opinion. And it's exhausting. And it crushes you and it crushes other people and people don't trust each other over a long period of time. And through a lot of pain, I'm gonna just tell you this, through a lot of pain, I learned something is I don't have to play a game anymore. I don't care what conversations are happening. I'm gonna give it to the Heavenly Father who remembers and say, you're gonna work this out. And you're gonna be like, well, Tim, that sounds really naive. You're gonna get slaughtered like that. You know what Paul says? All day long, we are being slaughtered like sheep. He kind of says it as a positive. <laughs> You're like, wait, what? Do, do you see this? If, if you believe that the God, there's a God who remembers and he is going to make it happen, it has practical real ramifications for every part of your life. I, I had this conversation with someone. Is Now when I have prayers with God, I'm like, it is your problem now. Thank you. Like, it's not my problem. I'm giving this to you. It's not my problem anymore. Now, will I work towards good things? Yes, this is not to be like, I'm not sitting in my chair all day. No, of course I work towards good things, but I'm not doing it in a way that is underhanded, exhausting, fatiguing, controlling, filled with anxiety. God remembers, God remembers, God remembers. That's the story of Christmas. When you see Abe there in that first part of the genealogy, it says, God remembers and takes care of it. So, Myth becomes fact. God remembers. What else do we have? Um, this is what we have in the story of Christmas. Grace is inexplicably and brazenly wild and dazzling and scandalous and outrageous. Now we get to the Bathsheba and the meaning of Christmas. We've been talking about Jesus' genealogy and how... Um, it operates in antiquity. Not, this isn't just in Judeo-Christian land, but your genealogy operates as some sort of resume. Far more than um, your family, your genealogy, far more than like your achievements or your accomplishments. Um, the genealogy is your resume. Uh, now, I assume this. I assume that all of us probably at some point um, have put together a resume or some sort of curriculum vitae. Okay. I'm going to assume a lot here. Now, I would venture to guess, I mean, probably very low numbers in this astute body, but I would venture to guess that on your resume, you might have overemphasized your small involvement in a pretty big project. <laughs> you can nervously laugh, right? I am sure that on your, on your resume, you used... Uh, vivid adjectives and power verbs. I'm sure you stayed away from linking verbs on your resume. 
uh, I am sure that you declined to offer up certain aspects or experiences in your lifetime. Uh, again, you guys love my, my examples about myself. Um, uh, there was a point in my life where I left out the first college I attended. Damn. You know why? Because um, I went to Rio Hondo College between, uh, in Whittier, next to El Monte. It's off of Workman Mill Road. Yeah, so I was talking to someone, they had a great joke, they said, yeah, if you have to say your college was off this road, um, there's probably a problem. Um, they called it Harvard on the Hill, and that's a joke, okay? Uh, you know what I did? There was a period where I left that off my resume. You don't put that on your resume, do you? All right. In antiquity, people would do this with their genealogies. The, the Caesars were famous for it. If you can trace your genealogy back to a, a god, that, that's a bonus. It's a plus. Um, you know, Herod, he's the villain, the baby-killing villain in the Christmas story. Herod was notorious for this. He, he had these criminals in his family. He took them out of his genealogy. He added nobles that were not even related to him to his genealogy. This is what you do to a resume. You put the best possible resume together, by hook or by crook. So when we come to the resume of Jesus, it is startling to see how forthright his resume is for the God-man, Savior of the universe, Messiah, to include, yes, these five women. So we said this wasn't a Judeo-Christian thing. Um, uh, they were gender outsiders. Their testimony didn't hold up in court. It wasn't even per, uh, permitted to be admitted in court. You couldn't legally own property or inherit property. Um, so, so here in Jesus' genealogy, we have gender outsiders. But then um, you have this. You have racial outsiders. So if you're trying to show some sort of like pure ethnic, cultural, national purity, um, there's a Canaanite, a Moabite, and a Hittite. Like you've just messed up. You're like, well, okay. We'll count the quarters, you know, half quarter, 32nd Jewish maybe. Like Jesus' resume is not working. And then probably, most incredibly, you have moral outsiders. So there's incest in there with Tamar, prostitution, Rahab, that's interesting. Um, adulterous affairs, Bathsheba that we're getting to here. I'm just saying, it's a pretty strange resume writing approach. It really is strange. Um, but but if, if a resume like that could be salvaged, this is what you want to do, is you want to get a guy on there so popular, so big, if you want to save this resume, just get one of the biggest dudes in Hebrew history. And he shows up. Jesus' resume is salvaged. King David, considered the best king that they had. He's on your squad. He's on your resume. There he is. Now, I think it's really hard for us to capture how razor sharp Matthew is being when he writes this because we have modern sensibilities. 
Um, this is in Matthew 1.6. So it's talking about the genealogy. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now you might think this. Tim, that kind of stinks. Like that just kind of shows how entrenched Matthew was in the patriarchy because she, he didn't even mention Bathsheba's name. And he uses the possessive, like Uriah owns her, what gives? See, we're reading it in modern lens. No, the Jewish reader, if you were to read this, it would have been like, oh, he did not just say that about King David. He did not. This is Matthew's point. The best example that they have, the best example that he have on his resume is what Matthew is saying this. The best example that you have was backstabbing, disloyal, murdering Uriah. What, what's that story about? You know, he grew up with Uriah. They were pals. When Saul was chasing David and wanted to kill David, Uriah was part of his crew and squad that fled with David and was loyal and said, even the king is against me, but I'm going to be loyal to you. And so on this resume, the very best possible example you can come up with, Matthew is saying, yeah, that's not a good thing to put on your resume. What's the point? In Jesus' family, every single person is an outsider. At his table, you will have a sex worker eat with a king. That's Jesus' family. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's gorgeous, but it's outrageous. That's brazen, that's wild. Like who does that? Do you know what, you know what that is? That's a big, powerful love. That's big enough and tenacious enough to love a beast and transform him. Let's pray into that. Uh, Jesus, uh, I, I do admit in my own heart and mind this doubt, and I think, wouldn't it be amazing if it were true? So come alongside my doubts, come alongside my whimpering beliefs, and build it up. So I'm not just inspired for two hours at a movie but it gives me the power to live a life that doesn't just follow you, but also loves and serves the people around me. I want that not just for me, but for my friends here too. In Jesus' name, amen.